Welcome to the Cricket's Sidecar, where we go a little further into a story of note with the person who wrote it. And now, Beverly Farms' own Nancy Coffey. Back when my children were young, the Beverly Historical Society didn't have a paid curator for the Cabot House, and so I was a volunteer curator there. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the Historical Society had never had a changing exhibit. The same exhibits that had always been there stayed there. What year was that? Do you remember? Early 1970s. Okay. And I started out the year before the bicentennial, and I said, this is crazy. We need a bicentennial exhibit. So we did. And then I did a couple of more, and I thought to myself, the Historical Society is kind of a stuffy place that's just old Beverly, and there's never been anything about immigrant Beverly. So I decided, and Beverly has a very vibrant Italian community. And I decided I'd do an exhibit on the Italian community in Beverly. And I got help from, this was before computers. And the Beverly, then Beverly Times copied photographs for me. And I didn't really, I wasn't really recording people, but I put, and I got a lot of help from the Italian community in Beverly and it was great, it was a great success. And as part of that, I got to know some of my Beverly Farms neighbors a little bit better than I had before. One of the people was a man named Frank Albano, who had come to this country when he was 13. I learned from that ex- doing that exhibit that Frank had worked at, in the gardens at Glen, Ur- at Glen Urquhart School when it was the Spalding Gardens before World War I. I was teaching at the school, and I decided I would do a little history of Frank and the gardens. And that was, I think, the first interview I did with anybody, and I hadn't thought about it. And Frank was great. One of the things that he told me was that I said, where did you, how, you know, how did you happen to come, and so on. He had a brother here from a very poor family in Italy. As a child, he had gone ealing, support the family. He didn't ever go to school. No school at all? No school at all. Oh, wow. And he was a really good storyteller. And so I said, so Frank, where did you live? And he said, Art the Crush. And I said, what? He said, the crush, out in the woods. I'll take you for a walk. So he took me for a walk out in the woods. And I still didn't really understand what he was talking about when he said the crush. But it was where Conley Brothers owned land and quarried granite. And the granite quarries in Beverly Farms were not dug quarries like in Rockport and Gloucester. But they were quarrying the cliffs. And the crush was a stone crusher because the sto- the stone cr- most of the stone was being used for avenues. They also did some for building, but mostly it was for that, it was for building avenues. The remains that were there when I went were, and it's still there, is a house foundation and a, and a well foundation. But Frank told me in addition to that, there had been shanties and that he had lived out there in the shanties with his brother. Do you kind of know when that was? Yeah, this was, he came in, I think, 1913. I was interested, but I wasn't, I didn't go on and do a lot more research at that point. In 2006, I came across remnants of the shantytown, which I hadn't seen when I went with Frank. Blue enameled coffee pot and a couple of old, couple of well holes that were the the foundations of the the shanties that were 
really shanties. Okay, so so, so this is Beverly Commons. I run up there all yeah. the time, up through that sort of main road. Okay, so if, if, if right after you go through the, I think it's, it used to be the second gate, there's a trail off to the left. Okay. And kind of the main one that goes off, kind of. Yeah, it has yeah, bicycle okay. trails yes. through it. And I thought, nobody tells the story of the working class. And that's what I'm really interested in. So, and nobody collects their pictures. So I decided I would start doing this mm-hmm. and doing oral histories and collecting photographs from families in Beverly Farms. Now, if, if you're not born in Beverly Farms, you're not a bar- Beverly Farmer. <laughs> and I was not born in Beverly Farms. And I, so this is, this is, you know, I'd been there 30 years by this time, but I was still... And as they say in the South, you're from away. Yeah, I was still from away, North Beverly. You know, how am I going to get people to talk to me? Ed Brown, who lives in Beverly Farms, lived in Beverly Farms. He died a few years ago, and he was the real Beverly Farms historian and had done a lot on... His interest was more in the earlier history, and but he and I were buddies, and I talked to him, and, you know, he was going to talk to people. But then I got the bright idea of doing a quiz about Beverly Farms history and then giving a little talk at the library and introducing this project that I wanted to collect this stuff. And the quiz was a great success. It was, you know, where was the shanty town and all this stuff. But I got a full house at the library. Then I explained what the project was going to be, that I wanted help from everybody in Beverly Farms, collecting old family photographs and people who would be willing to tell stories to me. Probably a lot of the people I actually interviewed weren't there, but a lot of longtime Beverly Farms people were, and so I got some legitimacy. And at the time, there was a rather difficult person running the Beverly Historical Society, and or I found him a little difficult to work with, and I decided I, it would be better anyway for me to work through from Beverly Farms. I had heard one rumor about the commons is that it was a very old neighborhood and all of those homes had burned to the ground somewhere very early on. So I don't know no. where I got that I rumor. I don't know where that came so from. So now I'm sort of fascinated. No. Okay, then no. what's the real story of Beverly yeah. Commons? Beverly Commons was common land. Um, Always. From the beginning. It's, it's not all common land now, Okay, But it started out as common land. Beverly Farms is... Um, some good farmland, but mostly swamps and cliffs. And the less usable land was the commons, and it was big. It ran to Centerville, and almost, I think where Endicott is, was still part of the commons, the back part of that area. And it stayed common land until, I think, either the mid-18th century or maybe later. And at that point, it was divided up into woodlots, and a lot of the stone walls that you see out there in the woods weren't for keeping animals away. They were for demarcation of people's woodlots. By the, 19th, by the end of the 19th century, that land began to get bought up. And some of the estate lands along Hale Street include land that was originally part of the commons. Oh. And Conley Brothers purchased woodlots because it had core, it had, it had granite on it. Oh. And that's the section off Greenwood Avenue. So that was owned by Conley for a long time and was eventually, I think, given to um, Greenbelt. Mm-hmm. So it's Greenbelt property now. Mm-hmm. 
So I was curious when, when Frank told me this story, trying to figure out, you know, who was there? And he named a few people. And then I interviewed another man shortly after I interviewed Frank, a man named um, Tony Ray, who had been a gardener on the estates. But this is really before I started the project. But he was about to turn 100. Oh, wow. And I decided to interview him because I knew he had also been out there. And there were really two shanty towns. One of them was on the Conley property, where Conley's quarry was. And the other one was behind what's now, where Reza Road is off of Haskell Street. And that was, there was two big contractors in Beverly Farms at the beginning of the 20th century. One was Conley Brothers, which still exists. And the other was Linehan and Sons. And Linehan had quarry land off of Haskell Street. Okay. And both of those quarries had shanty towns around them. So I looked in the 1900 census and I didn't find any Italians. And then I looked in the 1910 census and they really start coming to Beverly Farms after 1900. Um, so in the 1900 1910 census, I found these huge long lists of Italians and in Beverly Farms and they were in the shanty towns. That's where they were living. So let me and, just, because yeah. I'm from the West Coast yeah. and what is old on the West Coast is like 1945. Yeah, yeah. So when you described to me a 1910 shanty town here, what is that? What is, what it, what is the dwelling? What are they, is it like they literally were, they're using granite and no, something? No, no, or no, what no, are no, they? they were made of wood. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never, I don't have any pictures of them. Um, they had a potbelly stove inside that they used to keep warm, but they did all their cooking outside. Okay. Um, so these are sort of like little shacks, basically like little wood shacks, shacks, but they lived in them year round. And all kind of lined up along what, imagining their little trail road. They're different. Conleys seem to be a little more haphazard. Oh, they're sort so, of spread out. Okay. Yeah. They were kind of clustered. But Linehan's in the 1919 atlas mm-hmm. you can see actually houses at conley brothers most of these guys didn't speak any english mm-hmm. and so they needed an english speaker to kind of be there and there was a man named james ampel who had come earlier and had a grocery store and he ended up conley's built a store with housing at that quarry and invited James Zamsell to move his grocery store there. So he had this little grocery store and he had an apartment up above where his family lived. So he was lit, listed as the head for the Conley shanty town. Oh, so the head was the person who could speak English. Yeah. And so the people that lived in these shanty towns at Linehan's worked in the quarry. Worked in Linehan's quarry. And they didn't just work in the quarries. They, they did work for Linehan and for Conley, doing grading and doing other kinds of, um, they're all listed, almost all of them are listed as laborers. Um, Linehan's shantytown was a l- little better organized, I think. There was at least one old Yankee who lived there, and um, he may have been, I think he's listed as head of some of the houses. 
But Linehan's shanty shanty town had a family named Amatucci, and I forget his first name, Michelle Amatucci. First appear, he's the first one of the people I found in the 1900 census, and I found him on Misery Island. Oh. And there was a huge group of Italians on Misery Island in 1900. And I think Linehan, Linehan was doing work on Misery Island. And I think it was an, a work camp mm-hmm. of his workers. And when Misery Island was up for sale, when things weren't looking good, Linehan thought the, the contractors should buy it and make it a place to keep the Italians. <laughs> <laughs> Have their Italians living out on Misery Island, away from everybody. But that didn't work. But Amatucci had, the fir- I think, the first house in the Lanham Quarry area. And one of the first skilled laborers who came was a man named Nazaro Rizaldi. Mm-hmm. Nazaro Rizaldi was a steam driller. And so he was skilled. He came with his family. And he was also the first Italian to actually buy a house in Beverly Farms. Mm-hmm. So he didn't stay in the shanty town for too long did these folks that what you're saying are coming did they come from boston or did they literally come from italy straight here? for the most part they came straight from italy okay and james ampel was from the town of fundi which is outside of naples and most of the italians who came came to the beverly farms area not all of them but most of them came from the naples area a lot from fundi place called Ponte Corvo. So I learned, I could learn a lot of this from census mm-hmm. and a lot from the oral histories. Mm-hmm. And then... So um, the, so the uh, one set of people worked in the Linehan Quarry and the other shanty town, were they... They were working for Con- Conley Brothers Quarry. Oh, so, oh, so they were both quarries, basically. They're both quarries okay. and they're both working as quarrymen, but also as laborers mm-hmm. on all kinds of stuff. And the thing that's most interesting to me is that um, oh, one of the very interesting stories about the shanty town is that the, there was someone in the shanty town who wanted to um, start English classes for everybody who was there. And they approached the school department to see if they could use the Beverly Public Schools in, to the, its farm school. and. The school committee decided they couldn't. For They'd have to have a janitor. They'd have to have all this stuff. And no, they couldn't do it. But one of the members of the school committee was on the board of deacons, I guess, for the Baptist church in Beverly Farms. Asked the church. And they agreed to allow the Italians to have their school there. And the church may even have ended up paying for a teacher. Mm-hmm. So there became... And the church was very good to this Italian group. And then the, the Loring sisters got involved. These were The Loring family by this time was living in Beverly Farms full time, but they were Yankee Brahmins, two maiden sisters, maiden lady sisters. So Catherine and Louisa Loring decided they would start education programs for the Italians in English, I guess, or they sometimes got Italians in to talk on hygiene, American history, and then they got their their friend Anna Coleman Ladd, who had lived in Italy. They brought her in to do Magic Lantern show on Italy in Italian. Mm. 
And I think 65 men came. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to have an Italian from Boston come out to explain that elections didn't mean there was going to be unrest. These would be... The North Shore Breeze wrote about this program, Mm -hmm. which is where I learned a lot about it, congratulating the church and Beverly Farms for helping these, essentially helping these barbarians. Is it, is it common in your research that you've looked at across, uh, you know, the things around the farms that uh, immigrants came from pretty much everywhere? China, Mexico, no. Italian, or were there really specific it was groups? The two big immigrant groups that came, well, the two biggest immigrant groups that came were Italians and Irish, okay. far more Irish, um, and then Canadians too. For, um, but mostly, I think, my husband calls two hoppers, the ones who went from Ireland to Canada and that family came from Canada here. The other group, and there were a few of them in Beverly Farms, more in Beverly proper, were Swedish. Mm. And they were people who had worked on the estates and then somehow stayed. So there were a couple of Swedish families in Beverly Farms. Mm-hmm. When war broke out in Italy in 1915, I think is when the war, World War One, happens. A lot of Italians went home. A lot of them, when they came, anticipated earning money, sending money home, and buying land in Italy, and moving home. And there was some belief that if they didn't go home and fight for Italy in the war, they wouldn't be allowed to go home later. Oh. And so the place pretty much cleared out of Italian workers in 1915. Not all of them left, but a good many of them did. Most of them didn't come back to Beverly Farms, but a good number did. Over the years, Nancy recorded many interviews with descendants of Beverly Farms families. Here she is in October of 2017, talking with members of the Rizzoldi family about how their descendants found their way to Beverly Farms. Do you have any idea how Nazaro happened to come to Beverly Farms? There were many um, people who worked in the area of procurement of related tradesmen who would be responsible to the large uh, millionaires down at the farms to seek out mason workers. And it's likely that he got uh, enlisted into that through that process. Was there anything that you learned about those families that was really interesting or a particular detail about a family or a detail about the history that you thought was particularly interesting? So many things. Wonderful. Um, but one of my favorites was when I interviewed Tommy Rizaldi about his family. His, this was Nazaro and Caterina Rizaldi. He brought all his family together. So they all were telling Oh, us. when you interviewed them, you interviewed so the I whole family? Which is hard. Yeah. I wasn't prepared for. But one of the stories they told was that I guess I said something about how did you know how did Italians get through the depression and they said you know they knew how to do it Is that his grandmother yeah could you know do everything and his wife would not eat her cooking because she found out that the sauce was made with squirrel heads <laughs> here again is Nancy Coffee in 2017 interviewing the Rizzoldi family it was not beneath Nona to uh, take the uh, the heads of oh. of squirrels, oh. and uh, yeah. and cousin Greg 
he used to work with his father down at the Miller Estate in Wenham. Great spot. And that place was infested with squirrels, and Greg had a field day down there for the whole summer. And none I used to take the heads of the squirrel. Nothing was thrown away. She used to take the heads of the squirrel, and there'd be nothing to, to pull out the tray of all these squirrel heads. So what did she do with the squirrel heads? Any thoughts? What, no, well, a lot of times you put the squirrel you put the squirrel out here, clean them, and so yeah. forth naturally in your spaghetti sauce. Uh -huh. And uh, but the squirrel heads, you had to really pick the meat off yeah. of it. You had a heck of a lot to eat to a, to a squirrel. <laughs> I guess she saw her putting the squirrel heads into the oven, but uh, <laughs> she decided that wasn't an appetizing. <laughs> Was she Italian? The what? No. no. Oh well, no. there you go. But she the, didn't uh, understand. Yeah. <laughs> But it was just, I just loved interviewing the people. They were just, they had such wonderful stories. One, one story I love is Rocco Reza talking about his mother. His, his father had gone back to, World War, to fight in World War I, was put in a prisoner of war camp, and then when he got out, was required to fulfill his obligation to the military, so he couldn't come home right away. But he got married, and... I left his wife in Italy with his family and came here to earn enough money and settle things. So Rocco, and so Rocco was born in Italy and his mother was illiterate in both English and Italian. She spoke no English and was illiterate in Italian. And she comes over by herself oh my goodness. and lands in New York. Oh, God. And... He said it was November, and she was just wearing a shawl, and got off, and she, she was fine on the boat, because there were plenty of Italians on the boat, and she had like a baggage tag on her, in English, saying where she was supposed to go, and people helped her, and she got from New York to Boston, but she got to Boston, South Station, and there's no Rocco. And he's waiting at North Station, oh. or not, not Rocco, his father, I forget his name. And he finally gets to South Station. <laughs> Wait, that's, that story still happens to people all the time yeah. today. Right. <laughs> um, and how they got connected, if he, if yeah, somebody got How did got they hurt, find each other? I don't know, I'm not sure how they found each other. But he just had tears in his eyes. And now she, here she is with an infant. Oh my God, all this time. All this time, and... That's probably why she got as much help as she got, though, because in November, yes. yeah. in a shawl, carrying a tiny baby yeah. around, people yeah. probably did probably take did care of her. Take good care of her. So when Rocco told you this story about his parents, how how did he? Was he telling he us said, like it was folklore or? No, no, he's just matter of fact. This very is how matter of fact, but, but with tears in his eyes oh, okay. of how courageous his mother was. Yeah. And, and did they stay in the farms then for the rest of their lives? Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidecar. To hear more Cape Ann stories like these, subscribe to the Sidecar podcast from thecricket.com on your favorite podcasting platform.